Father, we again, we just thank you for this day that you've given us for an opportunity to be together. Um, we thank you that your word, which is truth, has been laid out and um, that it is breathed by you and uh, recorded for our benefit. We thank you that there was a time and a place when Christ came. And within that context and setting, there are so many things that add richness to understanding um, because we're so far removed from it, about 2,000 years removed from it. Maybe we don't always grasp all the nuances, but your word is uh, true and your word is consistent. And as we begin to understand the greater context, may we um, be enriched in understanding your plans and purposes. In Christ's precious name, amen. So as uh, Kevin was talking about a lot of the things, I was thinking about um, how some of that was fitting in. I don't know if I'll be able to recall them all, but he was pointing out um, just some of the setting and going back to Daniel and the kingdoms and, and uh, some of those things. And so that, that uh, context and setting of what happened uh, is very important. And the intertestament period um, was just a long, silent time. Uh, that God didn't have prophets and he didn't have people speaking and and uh, um, Israelites were had been taken into captivity and and uh, and then um, Alexander the Great came and kind of freed them and and so we'll see that the Jews were spread about spread about all over uh, into the known world and the whole structure of the religious system had kind of fallen apart and um and so within that context, we start to see certain things, but Jerusalem was still considered the hub of Judaism. And, uh, of course, that's the context that Christ came into. And um, uh, But Kevin was talking about how Christ upset their little circles, um, the, the things that they had going on. And it's like, wait, who's this guy? You know, Now all of a sudden there's a, another competing interest. So we're going to see that there were all these competing interests. And so when Christ comes in, now it's like another competing interest and so it just created great conflict uh, to all them so that's some of the setting and and it is important and that's why hopefully I uh, point out a lot of that stuff so we're going to look today starting with the religious world um, and some of the things that were going on so again uh, Judaism was uh, the main uh, religion of a monotheistic religion and then there were all kinds of other things so it says there were five distinct types of religious practices of course, um, uh, so Judaism was not the only thing. So they had superstitions and meaningless rituals, and then uh, the Jews still kind of had their uh, practice. We see that they were still offering some kind of sacrifices and had the temple. And, and uh, those different um, modes of religious practices were happening. So the primitive religion of Rome was animism, which is just believing that, you know, uh, things are animated with spirits and, uh, and that brings life to different things. And so the, the farmers would worship uh, the gods of their own farms. Um, they believed that, you know, somewhere within uh, their little land was this deity that they had to appease. And so they would make like sacrifices on their property to appease the deity that their crops would grow, that those... Uh, things would happen. And um, uh, so they did that kind of stuff. They would worship the field, the sky, the stream. Um, and so we know from some of the Greek mythology, some of those kind of things that had been incorporated uh, into their life that they just kind of saw gods and various things and they would try and appease these gods. 
Um, the Pantheon in Athens was a place of worship. Um, so when Alexander the Great reigned, it had great uh, influence in, in the culture there. And it was a, a, just a building that had an open uh, hole in the roof where they could look out and see the sky and, and uh, they worshiped there. So it was kind of a religious practice. And then um, it influenced uh, some of the Roman forms of the gods too. So when we get to um, uh, Paul in the book of Acts, are calling them both Roman and Greek god names, depending on the translation. And so there was a lot of crossover in how these people saw their gods, um, but it was all part of the mythology too. And then you get the influence of philosophers in about 300 B.C., um, they started trying to make a little bit more sense of things. So you had these superstitions and, and those kind of things of what people would just worship or, or bring light to. And then you had the philosophers who were trying to bring in some information too. And so all these different hodgepodge of superstitions and practices were going around with no real sense uh, of understanding. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts as Paul begins to encounter a couple people. So um, in Acts 19, uh, one of these gods, goddesses, that uh, was pretty prominent was this goddess Diana or Artemis um, of Ephesus. So let's, let's just take a look at the way that people were just kind of in a frenzy about some of that stuff. So in Acts 19, verse 27, we'll start with, No wonder. Um, it's interesting in Merritt Island too. There's a area that one street is is uh, Diana, and then it turns into um, it converges and they meet, and it turns into Artemis. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, sometimes I have to deliver in that area, and so there's it's got all you know Mars and Saturn and all these. God names and planet names and all this kind of stuff. It's just interesting how uh, those two streets kind of converge together. So um, Acts chapter 19, verse 20. Um, so mightily grew the word of God uh, and prevailed. 27. No wonder. No one corrected me. All right. Yeah. Um, so... Well, let's, uh, let's do back up a little bit. Um, let's take it from verse uh, 23. Um, it says, In the same time there arose no small stir about that way, that way being uh, Christianity as uh, Paul was moving through. So, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. So, um, their worship of the goddess Diana, they would build these little things, these little trinkets, and, um, and the craftsmen would make quite a bit of money. So whom, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. So he was kind of like the union steward, I guess, and overseer of all that. He probably got a take of everything that they got. And so he's saying, um, look, our, our um, system is, is about to be... Uh, uh, corrupted here. He says, this thing we got going is going to come apart. 
It says, moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only uh, this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath, and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's uh, companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander beckoned with the, with the hand, and would have made his difference unto the people. Uh, but when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? And so they had kind of created this whole myth and this whole story of this goddess Diana for worship. And so the craftsmen made their wealth. The people kind of congregated around that. But there was no real power or anything. It was just something they worshipped. And so when, um, when Paul began to bring the gospel to, the, to these people, um, it caused them great confusion as they were trying to settle uh, what, what is true and what were they uh, following. So um, that was one of the things. As we pointed out earlier, Caesar had um, been able to be worshipped as an emperor, although he didn't require it. He was worshipped as a god. He didn't require that to happen. But the state had gotten so powerful that people just lifted him up. And I guess that's, um, you know, the former days of populism. And uh, that's what happens when you have a figurehead that gets so important that people are looking at. They were turning him into a god. And um, he didn't require that, but he was a very powerful person. And then we saw that the, as the successors came about, there was more and more corruptness within their moral character. So as the Roman state grew, the um, consciousness prepared for a new kind of religion, worship of the state. And as power was concentrated to the emperor and the growing influence, people conferred divine status and attributes to Caesar. Julius Caesar was declared divine by the Senate posthumously, so after he died they said, oh yeah, he was a god. And um, they carried that on. And then Caligula attempted to erect a statue in the temple of Jerusalem. So he was kind of carrying on that all emperors were gods. And he tried to put a statue uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. And it caused uh, quite a bit of stir. This is, I guess, an historical fact. We don't really have that from scripture. But uh, this is what was going on in the state level. And then uh, Domitian, following him at the close of the first century, compelled subjects to worship him. And so the refusal of Christians during this period of time to worship a human being um, 
came in stark contract with the poly, polytheistic Romans. You know, they believed in these many gods, made up gods in their mythology. So they could easily add one more god. It didn't matter too much to them. But the Christians and those coming out of Judaism were really having a problem um, uh, against the state that was, uh, that was getting pretty large. And so we'll see uh, in the end, as Paul was writing, that that's one of the things that he was confronted with. And when he talks about, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me, um, but he was kind of seen as someone who was subversive to the state. And so um, we'll see that that was really uh, at the forefront of what was going on in his life and while he, why he was imprisoned and what was going to happen there as uh, Scripture went forth. So uh, that's a little foreshadowing for you. Um, there were some people who then wanted a, a more intimate form of worship. They wanted something that was a little bit more than just, uh, um, you know, saying, well, okay, we have to appease the season or appease the sun or whatever. They wanted something different. And so they kind of fell into some mystery religions. So there was some influence from the Eastern religions um, and mystics and some of the things that came from there. And uh, all those centered around a God who died, um, and some of them were resuscitated. Uh, and so they kind of had some common themes, or they uh, impersonated some of the things that, that had gone on. And so when Christ resurrected from the dead, um, these prior mythologies had kind of gone along with some of those that, you know, these, these gods can come back to life and, and different things. So it just kind of crossed into some of those. So... It wasn't necessarily seen as something unique uh, because of the perversion of those stories. Um, so um, some of these had then, like like in some of the secret societies that you have now, uh, different masons and knights of, uh, um, knights of the Round Table. No, that's not what I'm thinking. Knights of Columbus. Yeah, certain <laughs> secret societies, uh, uh, the Eastern Star religions, the uh, Masonic lodges, and all those kind of things. They have these. Um, uh, they have this inner knowledge, and so they're all kind of based on that. And so there were people who were hungering and you know kind of desiring um, intimate knowledge of something, and they thought that the more that they could do, and so this would rise very easily. Uh, to certain other things. So when you take the philosophers who could, um, you know, wax eloquently about something and these different ideas, they could merge them together and manipulate the people because they really didn't have any truth. Uh, They were susceptible to all kinds of things. And um, they would create cults and all kinds of things, which we see in uh, Colossians. So, um, again, it just kind of weaves in through some of the areas of Scripture and you know, maybe we don't necessarily know that, but in Colossians 2, um, they're dealing with some of these things of different kind of worship um, that, the, that the Christians then had to uh, deal with. So as they encountered other people, there were some of these other things. So uh, it says um, in uh, Colossians, Paul's addressing uh, this letter, and he says... Um, uh, Let's pick it up from uh, 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day 
or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. You know, all these different practices that they were doing to appease some kind of gods. He says, don't let people judge you about those, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, uh, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So I'm guessing this is in some of those things where people would, you know, flagellate. Is that what it's called? Flagellate? No. That's a, that's a different <laughs> word. Uh, uh-huh. It's flogged. Flogged themselves. Flogged. Yeah. Um, you know, where they would beat and whip themselves and put themselves in a false humility um, and uh, and then say that they were more important or they would worship angels. There was all kinds of things going on. Um, and it would puff them up. And it says, And not holding the head uh, from which all the body by joints and hands, having nourished, ministered, and knit together, increased with the increase of God. So they said all these different things would be a distraction from Christ who is the head of the body of, of the church. And, um, and so people take these different things and put them in and, uh, and just try and take away from, uh, from the real focus. So they're saying that, you know, oh, well, you can go in a deeper relationship by doing this. And, and people were subject to that, and it created these cults uh, within this um, whole practice. So, um. And one of the things that people wanted to do also was they wanted to understand how to control the universe. How did the, how did the universe work? Where, where did the power come from and, and certain things? And so we see that um, both Jews and Gentiles, well, as, as uh, Kevin pointed out in the first class, that back in Nebuchadnezzar they had these soothsayers and, and uh, um, those kind of things, the... Uh, I want to say charlatans, but that wasn't, I mean, that's what they were, but they were called uh, Chaldeans and, and uh, um, those huh? Sor- sorcerers and astrologers, the people yeah, who could supposedly see and read things. Um, so, you know, they've always had people who supposedly had deeper mystical knowledge and, and would use that as a system, you know, I mean, in, in all forms and in um, your Indian tribes, they have the shamans, and is that what it is? The medicine men, and different things like that. So, um, so that was nothing new. But now that Jewish worship had kind of moved away from God, and God had been quiet for a couple years, even they were uh, kind of interested in some of these things. And so, uh, when Paul was able to do various things, it elevated him to a status of God. People thought he was some kind of God, and he would have to reiterate, no, I'm just a man. But um, uh, So they were desiring these things, this, this understanding of the magical world. Um, but pagan magic was hostile to Christianity, and uh, we see that in a couple places in the book of Acts. So uh, we see that there was this movement, there was this, tri- this attempt to uh, manipulate and understand things with sorcery, um, we know that those things uh, are still, um, they were there and in existence, but they've always been defeated by the power of God when it came up against it. So, you know, you had Moses back in the Old Testament that uh, he would do something and the sorcerers and the tricksters back then would try and manipulate his what he, what he had done and God's power would be revealed and shown 
And so there were these different things. Well, it was also going on pretty heavily uh, throughout that region of the world. And we see that in a couple places in the book of Acts that some of these uh, magicians and, and sorcerers would come against uh, the truth and, and what happened. So the first one, Acts 8, uh, we're going to look at um, this uh, Simon uh, sorcerer. Uh, as Paul was uh, starting his um, missionary journey and he went out, uh, he was still named Saul at that point. Uh, for he hadn't changed his name. And so we see that uh, uh, in verse 9 of Acts 8. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out, uh, giving out that himself was some great one. So he just kind of puffed himself up. And I guess it would be the David Blaine of the day. Um, you know, does his street magic and... Some of those things are just really weird. I don't, I don't know where some of that stuff is, but you know, people are enamored by that. They see it, and then they try and build themselves up. And so that's what this guy was doing. And he obviously had some ability to do some some things that uh, um, uh, didn't come from uh, truth. They came from something darker. Uh, to whom they all gave heed. So the people would pay attention from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they uh, believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So, um, this is, and Kevin's made mention of the movie The Leap of Faith with uh, um, Steve Martin, where he pretended to be this faith healer, and then all of a sudden some people were healed. And so it just really confused him. That's kind of what's going on with this guy. He's like, well, I've practiced these things. I've been able to manipulate some things, but now all of a sudden there's something happened that I don't understand how it happened. I want that power. Um, And so he thought there was an even greater power that he could have. Uh, so when he saw those signs and wonders. So he was looking uh, to, get, to gain that. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, uh, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he, had, he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor a lot in this matter, for thy heart is not in the right in the sight of God, or not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive, perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So 
he realized that there was uh, something much more powerful than the things that he was able to uh, do before, and the power that had somehow come to him um, was subject to that, and so it was certainly in conflict. Also, we see that was um, I'm sorry, that was uh, uh, Philip dealing with him, and then we get the one with Paul in uh, Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, starting in verse uh, 6, we see this other sorcerer that um, Paul came in encounter with. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, set his eyes on him, and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, how thou child of the devil, thou enemy of the righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, uh, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. And so you get this situation where this other person who was going about doing their livelihood as a sorcerer, Paul was able to see it and confront him um, and those pagan arts to show that the power of God was much greater than those things. And so it became uh, certainly something that was visible in that world as they were dealing with those things. And then we see in um, Acts chapter 19, uh, verse 19, that when they came to believe in, in, uh, in Ephesus, that they came and they burned up all of their sorcery books and all their sources of their magical uh, arts and incantations and spells. And a lot of times... Um, there was a lot of youth groups for a while that would say that, you know, bring all your old rock and roll records when you believe and burn those up as if it was a sign of that. So, um, but they had all those things, and, and uh, it was certainly an active practice throughout that region, and uh, those things were starting to come uh, being exposed. So we see that. Uh, we saw that astrology was as far back as the Babylonian captivity, and um, that began to kind of come around with, uh, with some other things. And then uh, I have this statement in here at the end of that paragraph. Christians have always repudiated the worship of the Zodiac, um, meaning, you know, we don't, we don't believe in those things. However, uh, I do know some people who try to identify themselves as Christians who still read their horoscope every day. So... Um, but as believers, we should realize that those things are not compatible and that that has nothing to do with our life. Finding the will of God, as we're learning in the first class, has nothing to do with understanding uh, the zodiac and the alignment of, uh, was it Saturn and Jupiter earlier um, that I didn't see? I forgot <laughs> to look. But uh, I guess, huh? They're out there. They're out there? So... It's too late to see them now, as for what well, I understand. I, yeah. I, read a few, I read a few years ago, this is almost hysterical, is that they talk about you're born in the sun and the zodiac. But over the years, because of the way 
men track the calendar, it's off so much so that, for example, I think it's off like 20 some odd days so that say if someone says I was born under Aquarius, they probably actually were born under the next <laughs> sign. And so that it's kind of like a joke because you say what your sign is, but guess what? That wasn't where the, if, if the actual place of the earth in relation to the sun, if that actually meant anything, you were actually different, a different place. And so you're reading the wrong, and so it, but they don't tell you that. And so it kind of makes, uh, makes a joke out of the whole thing. Yeah. Brother Don's pointing out that uh, the signs of the zodiac are really not consistent with what the breakdown was. And over the years, those signs, if you really tracked them, would be very different. So when someone says they're born under a particular sign, um, they're probably not. <laughs> so. I always thought I was, I thought mine was good Taurus the bull. I thought I was full of bulls. I mean, it made sense to me. I find out I'm not. All right, and then, um, you know, so there was a lot of this uh, just kind of uh, ritualistic movement and not a lot of depth, um, very um, uh, very infantile understanding of manipulation of the gods. And so uh, for a lot of people, it was just a superstition. You know, we still see a lot of people who think that today, that even to identify any kind of god or anything outside of reality is just superstition, is what a lot of people believe. Um, but there was also some uh, some thoughtful men that came into the scene um, uh, that gave rise to various forms of philosophical thought to try and come up with explanations of things. And we as believers know that Scripture explains all things and that when you really look at it from the lens of, um, is this possible that there was a God who created and revealed uh, it changes the whole way of trying to disprove it. So uh, some of the things uh, that people never find out is, what if the Bible is actually true? You know, they never explore it from that position. They just think that it's a myth that was made up. So you had these uh, different philosophers, and uh, Plato, a student of Socrates, four centuries before Christ, um, so that philosophy started rising up long before um, uh, Christ period, it was actually in the beginning of the intertestament period when philosophy started to come in uh, to play. And they would formulate a system of thought trying to deal with the material world um, and that it was simply a shadow of the real world and that all material things are an inadequate copy uh, of the real. So um, I'm not as versed in, in watching the Matrix as uh, some others might be, but you know, there's a whole thing of what if, what if this is not real or something. Um, and so that's some of the philosophy stuff. It was, what if what we're seeing is just a shadow of something else that's being played out? And uh, so people tried to understand the world that way. And so when, then when you have writings from Scripture that say, well, this is a type of something to come or something like that, people think, oh, okay, well, there's a reality that, that is different or... Uh, whatever, and they don't they don't really begin to meld those two things where there is a God who is over all things, um, not just the material world, and uh, the things that he influences is much greater. So um, it becomes a problem. So a lot of people think that's too abstract and they can't deal with it. Um, and then there's other things like Gnosticism, which uh, try and make sense of the material world and the spiritual world or keep them separate and say that 
Um, things that happen in the body don't matter versus things that happen outside of the body. So you got all these different uh, philosophies and things that would rise up uh, as a result of those misguided thoughts. And that was the period that was going on when Christ came into the world and dealing with some of these. So we'll see that um, uh, some of these heresies and some of these things that the Gospels address have to deal with these misthought or mis misguided ideas that people were under the influence of uh, in the time period. Um, all right. And then, um, uh, so that, that just kind of explains a couple of di- the different thoughts. Some of them, uh, you know, Stoicism was uh, a belief system that says you really can't enjoy anything. And uh, that's been incorporated in some ways into into the church that, you know, people shouldn't have fun. Uh, there's cynicism that says, you know, all your wants and desires should go away and and just different things. And, you know, sometimes some of these things are married in with various denominational forms of church rather than just the truth of what Scripture says. So, uh, you know, I don't know if you've experienced any of those or not. Of course, at the time in the religion, Judaism uh, was still a monotheistic worship of one God, and it was supposed to be national to the Jewish people. But something had happened when they were taken into captivity and then freed. Um, They got dispersed all over the place, so they were no longer like a, a national group that could be identified and seen. They were scattered all about. Um... And uh, God had been silent. Uh, the law was forgotten in a lot of places, and prophets weren't speaking. And um, so the people began to get separated from their Jewish heritage. There was not as much national identity and things that were going on. So keeping their heritage by birth, but being dispersed over the Roman Empire after the Babylonian captivity, uh, that was the diaspora, that left these people of national identity scattered everywhere, and congregating together in major metropolitan hubs. So, you know, if they were, they were spread out all over, but then they would try and identify, and so they would gather together as, as Jews, and that gave rise to a different place of worship. They, couldn't, they didn't have a temple, um, and that couldn't be accessed, and so they started to give rise to synagogues throughout the empire for these nationals to gather. So there was a place that if you were of national Jewish heritage... Um, you would come and you would congregate with other people of the same um, and get to know each other. And so that was uh, dispersed among all these different um, population groups in that area too. And that's why Paul uh, could find synagogues in so many cities that he would go to because he says this group of Jews would be gathering here. And so they would still try and worship, but they didn't uh, carry through with all the old forms of sacrifice and and religion that came with Judaism. Uh, Within that, the synagogue uh, would have an elected head among the elders, and uh, those were from, you know, those would vary, and there was no continuity. The um, uh, Levitical priesthood no longer stood, and it gave rise to a class of individuals, the scribes, who could interpret the law as scholars. Rabbis replaced the priests from Israel, and the law and community were highly regarded. Um, And so we start to see this movement of things away from what God had originally revealed and wanted for his nation to show the glory to now it became a construct of people 
um, which is always an opportunity to manipulate things. Um, and so then you have the scribes who uh, could do some interpretation, and they were seen as leaders, and, um, and they were able to uh, add things and, and manipulate the law. Judaism itself gave rise to several different branches or sects, um, different things that, uh, different groups of leaders. Uh, and so the various ones uh, in that time were the Pharisees. They were the largest and the most influential. They were characterized by adherence to the law and separating from those less obedient. So there would be a distinction and they would, they would see themselves as uh, better than those who were less obedient to the law. The people would see that. They would have more of the wealth and things. And so uh, that was supposed to be an outpouring of their righteousness uh, would be the wealth that was accumulated. So they became kind of powerful people there. The Sadducees had more political clout um, because they were able to mix with the communities a little bit better. And they adhered to a literal interpretation of the Torah. They elevated the Torah over the prophets and other writings. And I don't have it in here, but they didn't believe in a resurrection. And so they were sad, you see. <laughs> that was the old thing. That's how you tell the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Is the Pharisees believed that there would be a resurrection, and the Sadducees didn't. Um, and then you had a group called the Essenes. They are the ones who settled near Qumran, which I think we have the Qumran scrolls. Um, and they grew through initiation and lived a life of strict legalism. So um, they would go through a ritual. So when, uh, when John the Baptist was out and baptizing, he was probably appealing pretty much to these people who lived a very strict legalistic life. And uh, they, they were there. And then you had the zealots. They were fanatical nationalists who advocated violence as a mean of liberation from Rome. And um, uh, from the things that uh, I remember uh, others saying and some, and some stuff is that, um, you know, these were the kind of people that as the Roman uh, soldiers would be around, these zealots um, would carry knives underneath their robes and stuff like that, and they'd just kind of come in behind the Roman soldiers and, They'd stab them and kill them and go, oh, look, a, a dead Roman soldier. Um, but they thought that they could, you know, overthrow. So they were ones who were really looking um, to find someone who would rise up in a violent fashion uh, to take over and restore Israel to a certain place. So you had those, all those as different leading political factions within Judaism, all with their own motives, all with their own ideas of what was supposed to come. And so when, you know, they were looking for a Messiah, they were looking for someone who was going to do something uh, very different than what the Messiah came. But they also had their own areas of influence and power, and they weren't really ready to give any of that up. And so Christ came as a threat to all their little inner workings of the way they constructed Judaism, which was allowed to exist in the Roman world at the time.